0: How do you create a successful joint venture between a benefits and an accounting firm, all the while managing the complexities of an extremely highly regulated market? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes
1: or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and Chief Transformation Strategist,
0: David Saltzman. This episode of Shift Shapers is brought to you by Major League Mindset, dedicated to helping you play bigger. Do you watch those other advisors grab the large accounts and wonder, What do they know that I don't? Do you think about being the recognized authority on health plans and other benefits in your market, but just aren't sure how to get there? The good news is, those other advisors know a few secrets that we can help you learn to turn you into that advisor that everyone else points to as the one to be. We've been there and done that, and we can help you get there too. Play bigger. Play Major League. We've had lots of discussions on the podcast about a variety of practice models, but I don't recall that we've ever had one that is a joint venture with an accounting practice until today. We've asked Adam Rosenfeld, who's president of BT Benefits and Consulting, to join us to talk about his practice, which is configured exactly that way. Welcome, Adam. Glad to be here. So first, a little bit about your background, because you didn't just come in green to this joint venture thing. So tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. I was on the
1: carrier side for about 13 years. I started right out of, right out of college with MetLife in the home office in Manhattan. Worked my way through different areas of um, group universal life in the marketing and then sales area dealing strictly in the Fortune 100, maybe Fortune 300 market. Eventually saw the light and moved over to sales and on the medical side actually made that move in coincident with a move to Prudential and a move in markets to Texas.
0: Texas, that must have been a switch.
1: It sure was. I was traveling pretty extensively with my uh, position at Met, so I got exposed to a lot of different cities. There was a lot going on in the Houston market. It was the number one market in the country for care, if anyone listening remembers that name. So I managed to get myself into that uh, into that office in the
0: in the Houston market with Prudential. It's also the only state in the union where the phrase, I tell you what, is a complete sentence. So you have to learn the lingo wherever you go, I guess. And the only state in the
1: union allowed to fly their state flag at the same height as the US flag. Apparently that was a condition of joining the union. These, are the, these are the things you learn when you become a Texan.
0: It's My my, my youngest daughter lived in, in Houston for a few years and just moved to Atlanta. And so I learned an awful lot about it. It's a, it's a great city and it, Now, what, the second or third largest city in the United States, but be that as it may. So tell me a little bit about how the partnership with an accounting firm, of all things, came about.
1: Sure. I was back in the New York market uh, working for Oxford Health Plans, which is a United Healthcare company, and they are the dominant, were and still are the dominant player here. I made a lot of connections with successful brokers in the area, and one of them and I, he kind of brokered the deal between myself and the accounting firm. Accountants were able to get into insurance oh, it must be twenty five years ago or more. You know, much of the way banks got into selling life insurance as well, accountants were able to get into the insurance business. Most of them set up a referral. Maybe they would share in the commissions and they would just refer it out. Well, this local accounting firm, which was at the time Holtz Rubenstein, they were looking to do it in-house, brand it and bring it all in. We kinda hit it off. We all had the same you know, philosophies and the same personalities, at least in terms of mainly looking after the client in the client's best interest, whatever the, you know, whether it was, whatever the field was, whether it was accounting or insurance, we all had that, you know, very paternalistic approach. So that, that uh, joint venture was born right around just before 2001.
0: Did you have conversations early on about how to keep the benefits side of the equation from an equal to the accounting side? I don't know a lot of times when benefits advisors form alliances, usually with property and casualty agencies, there's one that's dominant and one that's subordinate. Did, did you guys find a way to, did you talk about that early on and did you find a way to, to hit that balance? Well, like any referral r- arrangement, like
1: you just mentioned PNC, which I had spoken to several PNC C operations that we're looking to get into benefits. What I find kind of funny is that each each person that has that relationship, whether it's the accountant, the PNC, or the benefits broker, they feel like their relationship is is the relationship. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm the one that, you know, is the primary relationship. If I make an introduction, they'll go with my recommendation and so on. They also tend to get, especially the ones that are not sales. Remember, accountants, most of them are not really in a sales at least a type A personality type uh, sales position or mentality. So they tend to be protective of that relationship. Whereas my my philosophy is I'll introduce them to my clients to as many people as I can that I think that I've found that are experts in each individual's own fields. Sometimes the accountants are, are thinking that someone else coming in might mess up their relationship. So and that was the case here. Not that their relationship was better or or they were a primary, but what we tried to do was I, as I built up my rapport with each of the partners here at the time, it was uh, 28 partners. Now it's a national firm, Baker Tilly, with over 200 partners. But what I tried to do is first, my, I considered it a first sale. First, they had to, you know, I had to sell to them. They had to know that I wasn't going to embarrass them. I wasn't going to make them look bad. My primary goal was to always make the partner look good and make the accounting firm look good. Even if I, whether or not I got the business on the medical side was you know, almost irrelevant at that point because I knew it meant. Future referrals and future business. Interestingly enough, I outsold the accounting firm for the first 10 plus years about three to one. I was doing it the old fashioned way. I was cold calling. I was, uh, you know, working it however I could. You know, I just outsold them. But what was nice was when I was referred in, and the accounting firm, the original firm, Holtz Rubinstein, had such a strong name in the business community that just having that, you know, that clout behind me, so to speak, um, really opened up a lot of doors. And then once I get in, you know, hopefully I, I stood on my own merit, which has been the case for the last almost 20 years.
0: Sure. In my home office career, which has been part of what I've done over the years, I've I've had occasion to work with a couple of really great underwriters, a guy named Steve Padula, a guy named John Katikio a couple of others. And, and they're folks that you could bring out to an account without worrying about them taking the conversation to nerd land and being over the head of a prospect. You're also a reformed underwriter, but you did some public speaking. Did that help you in your ability to talk at a client level and to learn how to relate? Absolutely. I I
1: tell my kids this all the time. My oldest uh, is just in college, just finished a freshman year, and he's very business-minded. And I tell him all the time, I had probably two pieces of training that are absolutely the most critical, and I use every day just about. Public speaking was number one, absolutely number one. I learned that at MetLife when I was right out of college and I learned that every conversation is a presentation whether it's the newscaster on TV sitting at a desk or you're having a conversation with somebody casually or an actual finalist presentation to try you know for a closing on a you know 2000 person company it's all the same and it's you know they we learned how to plan for that of course not just the material which is the opening the middle and the close don't forget either one of them of course the, and the content is a given but really doing that in every conversation because it just really makes a difference so i've used that with every aspect of my career and personal life uh, since then it just becomes ingrained the underwriting aspect yes uh, a reformed underwriter it was i'm uh, probably the last class of truly trained Group reps, the old group reps, you know, MetLife, Prudential, really, they were the ones that had group rep training, they came in, you had two year program, 70s and 80s, that was uh, the equivalent of an MBA, basically, I moved to Prudential from, from MetLife. And I went through, like I said, their last class of it. And that included, it was a full stint of marketing, underwriting, and other aspects and sales, of course. So as an underwriter there, I was underwriting business in the Houston market. And the reps at that time were allowed to, you know, napkin underwrite, so to speak, on the back of a napkin. We were allowed to field underwrite a full medical group, you know, could be hundreds of employees. We would get the claims we would learn how to actually, you know, calculate a rate based on the claims data and adding in retention and adding in profit and so on. And if our rate that we sold was within 10 minus plus plus or minus 10% underwriting would hold it. They would check it after the sale and they would hold it. So we we truly were field underwriters at the time. This of course is before you know community rating and and before the the um, where everything is filed now you can't be plus or minus 10% it's hard to even be plus or minus a few percent but that underwriting background has really given me you know we'll say street credibility so to speak with with prospects you know they know I was an underwriter and I'm certainly able to speak the language and I can kind of be the translator between the client whether it's a CFO or an HR or an owner And the insurance company, you know, they, they, if they come back to us with a renewal and, and I can take a look at it, I can, I can dissect it with them and help explain what stuff means and, you know, where the trend came from, where it's going and try to, you know, help them make long-term projections
0: and business decisions based on it. This episode of Shift Shapers is brought to you by Major League Mindset, dedicated to helping you play bigger. Do you watch those other advisors grab the large accounts and wonder What do they know that I don't? Do you think about being the recognized authority on health plans and other benefits in your market, but just aren't sure how to get there? The good news is, those other advisors know a few secrets that we can help you learn to turn you into that advisor that everyone else points to as the one to be. We've been there and done that, and we can help you get there too. Play bigger. Play major league. I mean that that training's invaluable i mean the the question I guess is in today's marketplace, where do advisors go to get that kind of training is Is there a place? I know the old Pru schools are gone, and the stuff that you and I knew about when we came in into the business. where can they go, or is there a place?
1: you know that's a good point i I don't think there's a formal place anymore there's just not training anymore. I guess of course you could go. Work as an underwriter, get a job as an underwriter. I know I am always looking for a, a recovering uh, underwriter, as you say, to who may somebody who's kind of a type A personality, as you said earlier, but stuck behind a desk as an, in an underwriter role. And I am always looking for that person to hire and bring them into sales because of that. So, uh, but where do they get that training? I think the only way to get it is to actually go be an underwriter somewhere and then discover maybe a a year or five years later that that's not for you and you go look for something else.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a great background. I mean, years and years and years ago, previous generations, we were all called underwriters. That's why to this day, the National Association of Health Underwriters is called that. They weren't underwriters as we know them today. They were folks who could do field underwriting, a term that I guess most people under the age of 40 have, have probably never even heard, or folks who are newer in the business. But back back to markets. After Houston, and we talk a lot about different markets and their characteristics, you moved back to New York. What was that like, and what were the challenges?
1: Yeah, I actually moved around within Houston. I covered all about four major markets. I got transferred and, and moved around. So I, I covered Houston, the Dallas-Fort Worth market, San Antonio, and interestingly enough, the Dallas market specifically, because I was hired by a local regional HMO to expand from Fort Worth into Dallas in the large group market. And the Dallas market was the most akin to New York. It was predominantly broker controlled, 90 plus percent. A lot of the laws, the small group laws, the community rated laws are very similar from New York to Texas. But when I did go 96, I think it was, when I moved back to New York, the thing that I found very interesting is at the time Oxford Health Plans was really just exploding. Their growth was, you know, ma- breaking records and their their sales pitch was, "Hey, we have every doctor in the New York area in our plan and we had this new thing called a point of service plan which wasn't new in other markets but it was new here." And they said, "We'll sell you a plan that's got your exact Indemnity plan, 100 deductible, eighty twenty, five thousand dollar max. Uh, max actually it was a five thousand dollar stop loss, so twenty percent of that was a thousand dollar max out of pocket. So very very rich added network, and by the way, we'll put it in network plan where you know you can pay five or ten dollars for all your care, and everything else is covered in full. Oh, and the rates are you know thirty or forty percent less than what you're currently spending. So how could anybody say no? All the doctors were in it, and you're going to just cut your personal cost as a member dramatically. Ironically, the first thing I said when I saw that model was, you know, how are you going to sustain this? Because where's the cost control? You know, and, and Oxford, if you know any of the history with that, their, the way they sustained their growth was just by constantly bringing in new members. They were, they were ahead of the lag all the time, the claims lag. So they brought in more premium than they paid out in claims only because of the growth, and that eventually caught up with them, but you
0: know they certainly survived but that was that was an issue so that that's the market from a sales and carrier perspective, but New York is also a very different legislative and regulatory environment. Did you bump up against some of that stuff as well
1: yeah we're we're still bumping pretty hard. I believe New York is the most has the most mandates of any state. last count it was up in the around sixties and that's I'm talking about specific benefits, whether it's, you know, chiropractic, originally it was maternity and mental health, things like that, uh, autism coverages. So we have a tremendous amount of mandates, which makes the benefits very rich, which brings the price up, of course. We also have something here that's very unique and it's broken. It needs to be fixed. And that is from the broker's standpoint. There's old antiquated laws on the books that are anti-rebating laws. And those laws were designed to protect the consumer to say, really with life insurance mostly, that said, hey, you know, Adam and David are both pitching me life insurance. Adam said he would split the commission with me if I buy from him. That's rebating, classic rebating, and it's illegal. And, you know, of course, we don't do that. And I don't, I've actually never met anybody that does it. That's been on the books for a very long time. Unfortunately, the way the law is written, much of the services that brokers do now as part of being a full service broker might run afoul of that they they um, you know it's just even just doing day-to-day services working with the carriers it was so bad that at some point i think it was i have the I have it written down it was a circular letter number 9 as i recall probably about 10 or 15 years ago the state governor finally said okay we recognize that that's not rebating they're actually just trying to help so let's make that Exempt from the you know the anti rebating rules, so so it's okay to do that stuff now because we had this letter from from the governor many years ago to do that, but yet every year the New York chapter of Nehu tries to get this you know codified in law and we can't it just doesn't get passed. I think nobody really has an interest in it except for us, so it's kind of an ironic thing that's out there and we're trying to get that uh, get that taken out
0: just to make just because we want to do more services for our clients. Sure. There are also some challenges with with stop loss, um, and that kind of makes an impact on the partially self-funded market, aren't there, in New York? Correct, correct.
1: So New York State was one of, I think it's four markets that moved community ratings threshold size from 50 employees up to 100. They did that in the state level just in advance of healthcare reform doing it on a federal level. And then, of course, as we all know, the under Obama, put a stay of execution, so to speak, on that change. So the rest of the country stayed at 50 as the dividing line for large and small group. And New York market is 100 now, and it's not going to reverse. New York has another really quirky law that says small groups, and it's just defined by the word small, not size. So that's now 100. It's against the law for them to purchase stop loss insurance, which means you can't be self-insured. So unfortunately, many markets that, around the country that are doing a lot with self-funding, you can't do that with, unless you have over 100 eligible employees in New York State. And I'm part of a national group. I think you're familiar with them, David, Q4 Intelligence. And we, uh, as a national group of brokers, we get together about every nine months in different markets around the country, uh, in different cities, and we share best practices. You know, if I'm doing something great in New York and they didn't hear about it in, you know, in Tennessee, I share and vice versa. And I know a lot of my colleagues are doing stuff with self-funding on a much smaller group basis and having some good, good results. It's very frustrating that I can't roll those out to my groups that are, especially the 50 to 99 market, because when we change the small group size from 50 to 100, a lot of those groups in that category saw huge increases um, because they're they were better than average. In other words, community rate is average, and their demographics, their age, sex, their industry was better than average. So they had to come up and pay average, and they have no way around that. Where self funding would have given that way around it.
0: It's always fascinating, you know, the the changes from market to market. We we've got a couple of minutes left, and one of the questions that I want to ask you, we'll go back to kind of where we started was if, if I'm a benefit advisor and I want to partner up, even on a, a casual basis, with an accounting firm, what are the things I should look for?
1: Well, I think the most important is the thing I said from the onset of the conversation, and that is you want to find a partner that cares about their clients the same way you do. In fact, when we look for prospective clients, that's what we say. We won't work with anybody. We work with groups, employers that care about their employees the same way that we do. We, we feel we're very paternalistic. We, we feel like every employee, I, I say they they're like members of my own family. So when someone calls with a service problem, it's like when you're, you know when your aunt calls and says, "I have this claim, is this something you can help with?" So we find when when whether it's the accounting side or the benefits side, when they look for good partners where an employer has that mentality of taking care of their employees first and letting that affect the bottom line as a result, as opposed to letting the bottom line drive who you hire and how you act, that overall you have a you wind up being profitable in the end. the business tends to do well because everybody puts forth a hundred percent because they're all in. If they all feel like they're doing this to pitch in together, then they're all in. And that's the way we treat clients. So we look for clients that,
0: that do that and respect that and reward that. That's a great place to end our conversation for today. Adam Rosenfeld, president of BT Benefits and Consulting. Adam, thanks so much for sharing your perspective and your insight with the Shift Shapers audience. Thank you for having me. Always nice talking with you. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved.